0: Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Well, hey there, Impact Makers. I've got something special for you today. As you may know, my dream job is also my day job. And through my work, I have the opportunity to speak at conferences and events around the world to leaders in a variety of organizations. Typically, I'm speaking about topics related to making an impact through people strategies, effective leadership, and personal branding. And one of my favorite audiences to speak to includes human resources leaders. As a former HR leader and executive, I'll always have a special place in my heart for HR and people leaders, and I've got tons of stories that I can share from my own personal experiences to connect with them. I'm currently in the process of organizing some of the audio and video files from past events because I'm planning to do a refresh and update of my website this year. While listening to various files, I came across the audio from my 2016 mega session at the SHRM annual conference, which was held in Washington, D.C. SHRM is the largest HR association in the world with over 350,000 members, and every year their annual conference draws 20,000 people or more. I've had the pleasure of speaking at that conference every year since 2012 and leading mega sessions, which can sometimes include over 2000 people. So today I thought I'd share the audio with you for a couple of reasons. First, while it's called the future of HR, I'm really speaking to all leaders about how to make the most impact at work. The stories are HR related, but the strategies and advice can be applied to any leader who wants to make a difference. Second, This particular program is my most popular keynote speech, which I've been giving in some form since 2014. If you're interested in what makes an effective keynote that's received countless positive testimonials, has takeaways for audience members at all levels of an organization, and has earned multiple six figures in income for me, pay attention to the structure of the talk. You'll hear numerous stories, learn four key points, and also get some takeaways that you can apply right now, as well as when you get back to the office from an event. I've thought about retiring this program for the last couple of years, but it continues to be requested and I absolutely love delivering it. I've updated it since the program in 2016 to keep the data current and have made the story sharper to keep it to under one hour, but the bones are still good bones. In this particular audio, it's about an hour and 10 minutes long, which meant that I finished under the one hour and 15 minute time slot allotted to me for my session. That is rule number one for any speaker, finish on time. I hope you enjoy my signature keynote, The Future of HR, Four Strategies to Meet Business Challenges in the Future and Deliver Maximum Impact on Results. But first, it takes a village to bring my podcast to you each week, and I want to thank King University for their support, which makes this podcast possible. King is proud to offer 16 online degrees with accelerated programs and affordable tuition so you can start a new career faster than ever. You can choose from programs in technology, communication, and business, like an online MBA with six concentrations, including human resource management. And because the program is offered fully online, you can earn your degree on your own schedule in as little as 16 months. Visit net forward slash KingU, that's K-I-N-G, the letter U, to learn more about the King difference today. Well, good afternoon or good morning. I'm already thinking about the future, as you can see. So, (laughs) Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with you over the next hour or so about the future of HR, which for all of us, the future is right now and tomorrow, obviously, and I want to share with you some things, more of a mindset. So this is not going to be, here's necessarily five things you need to do when you go back to the office, although I will give you some of those, but more I want you to be thinking about a mindset shift. The future is going to require a mindset shift. But before we talk about the future of HR, it always helps to go back. And so I'd like to take you back to 1988, the year of big hair and metal bands. And some of you are like, 1988, I wasn't even born. But in 1988, in August of 1988, I started my first day of my first real job in human resources. So that was a big day. And I remember sitting there in my office, which was strategically placed between the men's and women's restroom and the hallway on the way to the factory floor, all by myself. But I sat there that day and I felt like I had achieved all of my hopes and dreams because actually I had chosen to go into HR. So how many of you chose HR as your profession? Oh, wow, about half of you. So the others of you just kind of like found your way there somewhere along the way, right? (laughs) But I actually chose HR back when it was called Personnel, and SHRM was called the American Society for Personnel Administrators, right? But I wanted to be in Personnel because I liked people and I liked helping people, and I felt like Personnel would be a great place to do that. So I finally convinced someone to hire me with no real experience as a personnel manager, but it was even better than I had anticipated. I had a great title. It was Personnel Manager slash Shipping and Receiving Manager. So clearly, They knew the importance of personnel because they wanted to make sure that I had the opportunity to be involved in operations, which was actually a real real gift. But again, on that first day of my first real job in human resources, I felt like I had arrived. I had a really nice long business title that would look good on a card. I had my own office. They were gonna pay me $18,000 a year, which was all I ever thought that I needed to make in life. And life looked good because I was gonna be able to Help people, and I really liked working with people. But on that first day of my first real job in human resources, I never could have imagined all of the strategic and business critical things that I would be able to be involved in because I had chosen to go into human resources. There was the time that the CFO assigned me to collecting dimes from the feminine hygiene machines in the ladies' restroom. Because I was a girl and because, of course, HR can do that. And then there was the times where I would have tons of people waiting at my desk and asking me for help because the copy machine had broken down and, you know, of course, HR can help with that. And then there were the hundreds of picnics and parties that I would get to plan for people thinking that they would have a great time and be so appreciative of all of our hard work and what the company had done for them, only to have them show up the next day to complain that there weren't enough vegetarian options or the cake was chocolate instead of vanilla or their kid didn't win a door prize. Or there are the times that I was able to have really deep, meaningful conversations with employees where they were sitting across the table yelling and screaming at me about how I didn't care about them or their families because despite the 72 reminders, emails, and snail mails I had sent to them about open enrollment, they failed to sign up their family for our health insurance plan. And of course, HR was responsible for that. I never could have imagined all of those things that I would get the opportunity to be involved in on my first day in my first real job in HR. But of course, I also got to be involved in many other things and very proud of the opportunity to work with people and to work as a human resources leader and executive for many years of my career. But I've also learned a thing or two during that time. And I can tell you that the thing that sticks out the most to me that I've learned in my almost 28 years of working in or around human resources is that the only people who say that they want to work in HR because they like people and they want to help people are people who are in their first day of their first real job (laughs) in human resources, right? Because by the second day, you'd better come up with another mission, right? (laughs) Because people are wonderful, obviously, but they certainly create a lot of challenges. And I don't know if you're like me, you probably are, if you're still in this type of profession, challenges are what makes the job meaningful. And solving those challenges is what makes them meaningful. So certainly the future of HR will involve some challenges because we work with a very dynamic resource. But the challenge for us is, is that not many people these days seem to be valuing our contribution and what we bring to the profession. You can't go online or look in a business magazine without seeing some sort of article where people are either mentioning that HR no longer needs to exist, isn't necessary, is not needed, is a cost center that no one needs. And basically, like the last one there, they still hate us, back even from the, what, 1995 article about why we hate HR. In fact, company magazine. This is what we're faced with every day when we know that we're out there doing good work and that the business needs us, but other people often who are not in HR are writing about our profession and saying that it's not needed. So what what can we kind of grab onto in those situations? How do we really connect the fact that HR is necessary? So I want to give you some hope if you didn't know this already. They do at the conference board, every year an annual global survey of CEOs. So this is a huge survey, and again, it's done every year, where they ask global CEOs what their biggest challenges are that are facing their business going into the next year. So for example, the results that are released this year, early 2016, or what they're looking for into 2017. But they've done this survey for several years, and surprise, surprise, if you look back at the results over the last five years, human capital has been the top issue four out of the five years, and of course it was number two five years ago. So it begs the question, if there are people out there writing that HR is no longer necessary and we don't need HR and, and everybody can do their own HR, but yet human capital is the number one challenge facing our businesses, as stated by the business leaders, then I would say, and Hank Jackson actually said the same thing in his opening speech, that you are actually the key. You are the key because you work with the resource that is the most critical in the organization and also presents the biggest challenges. And you of all people and other people on the HR team and your company are the key because that's your area of expertise, right? You are the expert, you bring forth the knowledge, you come to events like this to learn how to go back and help your organization achieve competitive advantage. So. I know you all like takeaways, so your first takeaway you can write down and your first thing you need to do when you get back to the office is I want you to schedule an appointment with the CEO. So walk right past that gatekeeper, just walk into his or her office, get on their calendar, whatever you have to do, and I want you to tell them that you came to the Sherm conference and you learned one thing. You learned that you are the most important employee in the organization <laughs> and you expect to be treated accordingly. Fill out your own pay increase and just slide that across the desk, right? And then send me an email. Let me know how that went for you. Because so far, nobody's ever sent me an email telling me they got a raise. But I do believe that. And you don't have to go tell your CEO that. But in their heart, they know that. Even if they act like HR is not important, they know they're not the experts in human resources and human capital and human relations and those things that you are. So they need you and your organization needs you. But we have some challenges, obviously. We have some challenges in our profession, as does everyone, and I'm going to talk about four of them today. And again, more of a mindset. I want you to be thinking about, well, yeah, some of these things we've heard before, and I may think that I'm doing them. But obviously, if I'm up here talking about them, we're not all doing them. Because we need to step up, because we're actually in that spotlight and have the chance to shine in our organization. So starting with the first challenge of four, the first challenge that I see for HR in the future is knowing the business. And many of you are going, okay, yeah, I took financial accounting for non-financial managers and I can read a P&L and I've been told I need to do those things, I get that and that makes sense. And that does make sense. You need to certainly understand the mechanics of how your business is run and how it makes money. But when I'm talking about knowing the business, I think the future of knowing your business is really about not just business plans and not just P&Ls, but it's more about data. There is a mountain of data available to your own business, and you've probably seen or gone to several sessions here at the conference that talk about data and predictive analytics and big data and all kinds of information around the data that's out there that is available to us. It's certainly the hot topic out there these days, but again, this is an area where HR can shine. And we're not necessarily stepping up to the challenge to do so. If you think about it, your marketing organization, your sales organization, your operations organization, all of them use data every day to understand our customers, understand how to get them to buy more, understand how to make product more efficiently. But what do we typically do in HR? We typically report on things like time to fill, absenteeism, cost per hire, metrics that we report on, but unfortunately, if you think about all the charts that you probably share with your leadership team every month or that your department tracks, the majority of them are looking into the past. We're tracking historical data, and then we're sharing it with the world and saying our turnover rate is now 25 percent. Last month, it was 24 percent, so it's a little worse this month, but here's the 25 reasons why we think that is. What you need to be doing is, sometimes you might still track the same things, but what kind of data do you actually need to be looking into to understand what you need to do in the future? So again, the future of HR is not reporting history necessarily, it's understanding what the data tells us that we need to do in the future. I'll give you an example from my own experience. My last role where I was a VP of HR in a company that was privately held at the time and was actually about to go bankrupt. So they hired a new CEO who brought in an entirely new executive team to turn around the company, and I stepped up to that challenge. And that sounded like something, you know, my job was to help turn around the culture and also to do it financially so that we could get the company to a value where it would be profitable and could be sold to the right people. So that sounded like a great challenge and I stepped up for that. When I interviewed for the job, I interviewed with all the members of the executive team and interviewed with some other people in the organization and to a person, everyone said, we have huge problems with turnover in our organization. And we expect the next VP of HR to solve turnover in this organization because it's really high and it's an issue for us. So I kept hearing turnover, turnover, turnover. So that was a mantra the CEO actually gave me when I accepted the offer. He wanted me to fix turnover, fix attendance in the factory, and to implement a performance management system for everyone in salaried roles. So those are my three challenges and my marching orders from day one, and it was a confidential search. So, you know, my first day was the first day I actually got to meet the HR team and I brought them into the boardroom so that I could get to know them and introduce myself. And as part of that, I said, you know, while I was interviewing with the company, I heard that we have some really big challenges. And one of the challenges that I heard a lot about was turnover, but no one ever shared with me what the turnover rate is. So could you guys tell me what is our turnover and what do we need to start to go after? And they all looked at me and they were great people, so nothing personally against them. They looked at me and they said, we don't know. It's bad, but we don't know because we can't track it. And one of the things that I had failed to ask in the interview process, never thought I would need to ask, is do you actually have an HRIS system or any way of tracking information or data in this 140-year-old company? And they did, but it was one of those Unix green screens with the blinking cursor, right? Some of you remember those. I went into my office, my nice office, with the big green screen on my desk, and I said, wait a minute, so we're not tracking things like turnover, we're not tracking things like attendance, we're not tracking, you know, retention or any of the things that we typically track in HR. And they're like, nope, you can't run reports because the system is so old. Interesting. So I've been presented with a challenge, which is unknown, but only described as bad. And it's one of the three things that I've been tasked with in joining my new company. So I actually did what any good HR vice president would do, is I printed off anything I could get out of the Unix system of the last 140 years of employment in this organization of almost a 1,000 people, and I created the most massive Excel spreadsheet you've ever seen in your life. took me two weeks, but I worked on that Excel spreadsheet day and night because I needed to know, other than it's bad, I needed to know what the actual situation was and after I completed my Excel chart and I hit the button and ran, you know, the old charts, graphs, and data there, I made an appointment to go see the CEO. Actually, I just walked by the gatekeeper, and I said, this is important. I'm the most important person in the company, and I need to talk to him. Walked in there, and I said, I just want you to know, you gave me three things that I need to focus on in my new role. One of them was turnover, and I'm not going to focus on that. And he said, Well, why not? It's bad. And I said, our turnover rate, including retirees and deaths, is (laughs) 2.3%. Anybody ever 2.3% is like an hour in some companies, right? (laughs) 2.3% historical, very flat kind of trend line for the company for turnover. But what I did find, because I created that magical Excel spreadsheet, and I was curious, so I went a step further and said, okay, yeah, it's 2.3%, so something's wrong here that everyone feels that turnover is wrong or high. What do I need to do? How far can I dive into this data and what I need to figure out? Well, it turns out in our finishing operation. It was a playing card manufacturing company, very old technology. It's not rocket science to make playing cards, but they were special. Uh, (laughs) We hired people into, at the time, $7 an hour jobs on all three shifts, and they did very mindless tasks. They loaded a sheet of cards in a machine. They took the cards out of the machine. They stacked cards on a box and paid $7 an hour, and that was called finishing. And in our second and third shift finishing roles, which were all the people that had not been there 45 years, the turnover was about 80%. So the heart of our operation is making these playing cards. We were the largest playing card manufacturer in the world, so we had global customers, lots of casinos that, you know, depended on us to get the cards, lots of playing card customers. And if that's the heart of our operation, no wonder people feel like turnover is really a problem, but turnover is really concentrated in one area. And when I went out with the operations manager to actually kind of look at what was involved with the jobs, all I saw was people just doing mindless work, 18, 19-year-old kids, just mindless work. And I said, you know, we're paying five of these jobs to load or unload or to put something in a machine or take something out of a machine the same rate. What do you think would happen if we actually offered the opportunity for them to learn all five jobs instead of just doing one and rotate so they at least get a little bit of variety during the day? And he said, I don't think the older employees, the people that have been there 45, 50 years, and there were some of them, would go for that. I said, okay, well, why don't we ask them? But after we ask them, if they say no, why don't we make rotation an option? If you want to rotate, you can. And so we did that, and some of the people didn't want to rotate, and some of them did. And the turnover dropped dramatically in operations. And the CEO and the executive team came to me after a few months and they said, you did it, you solved turnover. And I said, no, the operations manager solved turnover. We just needed to figure out where it was. So by using data and then being curious about the data and then understanding some potential causes of why it might be what it is, working with the other leaders in the company, we were able to solve that challenge and then move on to something new. So don't get hung up on big data, but think about knowing the business from the sense of what does the data tell you? And I think this is an interesting thing that we need to think about. How many ways can we use data to understand what the challenges and the opportunities are in our business? What can data tell us? So I told you a personal story. I'll share a couple of other stories with you of how data has been used by companies to understand their business. The first one is a large financial services company, a name you've probably all heard, but it's just basically a large global financial services company. And they engaged the consulting firm Deloitte to come into their organization and really look into their hiring process. They were experiencing some new hire turnover, people not staying with the organization. They were obviously investing a lot of money in hiring people and then also. So onboarding them into the organization, and they really wanted to understand why people potentially were not a fit for the organization after their elaborate hiring process and why they weren't staying. So at the time when they engaged Deloitte, they had a process for hiring entry-level college grads into their program. And they had some requirements. So for those entry-level positions, you had to have graduated from certain schools. So obviously the school where the CEO went, right? (laughs) And all the managers. But they had certain schools that they recruited from, not from other schools. You had to have a grade point average of 3.5 or better. And your references had to be stellar. So 3.4, good school, great references, not for us. So they had these minimum requirements before they hired people into the program. So Deloitte took off, they looked at all the data, all the people that had been hired, the people that were still there, the people that had left, and lo and behold, what did they find? They found that some key predictors of success of new hires in the company were No typos or grammar errors on their resume. Now that's not an excuse for you to go back and not hire somebody because they have a typo. They didn't quit school, so they were able to show that they were able to stick through with something they had experience in real estate or auto sales. Interesting data point, right? So this is a financial services company, a sales role in a financial services company. They had not been looking for people who had experience in real estate or auto sales. They'd been looking for college graduates with a certain GPA from certain schools. But the data showed them that this background in real estate sales or auto sales, probably something related to the sales cycle and the process and the mentality, that's where people were actually successful. They also had the ability to succeed with the vague instruction, and they were able to plan and manage a lot of tasks. So these were the data points that they uncovered through analyzing the data of people who stayed and people who left, and they were able to say, this is actually what makes a successful hire. Interestingly enough, though, they were also able to find some factors that were not predictors of future success. Anybody have an idea what those were? (laughs) You guys, you're smart people. I like this. The things that were not predictors of hiring success were where they went to school, what their grade point average was, or the quality of their references. Surprise, those references are all names that they give you. They're going to say something nice about them, right? And sometimes we all have challenges where maybe we're not able to obtain a 3.5 GPA. But the reality is after getting this data, they were able to make changes in their hiring process. And six months later, revenues had increased in the company by $4 million, Now, I'm sure there were probably a few other factors in that, but if I'm the CHRO or the VP of HR, I'm walking right past that gatekeeper into the CEO's office and I'm saying, I am the most important employee in the company because I delivered $6 million to the bottom line. Have you ever had a chance to say that to your CEO? They wouldn't have done that if they had not looked at the data to say, what is the data that we already have telling us? What do we need to do differently in the future to fix and solve a challenge that we have in our organization? Another example here is McDonald's. McDonald's employed KPMG to come in and also do a study, what they wanted to see in terms of each of their 400, and these were in the UK, 400 franchisees in the UK. How did they need to look at diversity and makeup of teams and organizations, and were there any factors that predicted more success in a location than others? So after crunching all the data numbers, what KPMG came up with when they analyzed these 400 McDonald's franchisers were, on average, restaurants with at least one worker aged 60 plus had 20% higher satisfaction levels. They attracted an older population into the stores the team dynamics were significantly better than other organizations, and there was a significant financial uplift in stores where there is at least one mature worker. That's gold if you're in HR, when you can think about how do we actually create teams that can be successful not only internally, but can add satisfaction levels, increase profit, and bring in a wide variety of customers. So that's something, again, if you're just tracking terminations or absenteeism or cost per hire, you're never going to get at insights like this. So what is the data that you can use in your business to really show that you know the business, you're looking for ways to make the business strategically better, and to do things like drop profit to the bottom line? So look at the charts and the data that you're doing or you're collecting already and tell a story. Is there a story to be told with anything that you've been tracking for the last 10 years? Not just trends, because obviously if you're tracking it, you probably see the trends are up or down and you take action there. But is there a story that we need to think about in the future? You know, if hiring is more difficult now, but demographic shifts are gonna make it even more difficult in the future, and tech talent is located in San Francisco and Austin and Boston and we're located in Omaha, what business changes do we need to make if we need to hire that talent in the future? That's where HR really adds value as a strategic partner. Looking into the future and saying, what are the challenges and the opportunities that we face and how are we going to address them before we get there? and not waiting and being reactive. So I like this quote from Seth Godin, and I challenge you to go back to your organizations and think about that. If you are measuring something that doesn't cause you to make decisions or to change your actions, I don't even understand why you're measuring it. If those charts and graphs that you send out to your leaders every month, no one ever makes a decision on them or does something different as a result of tracking that data, it's wasted time. And are there areas in the business that you're not focusing on where you never thought about looking at the data where either there's a problem or you sense there's an opportunity where you can look into the future and say what do we need to do differently in order to take advantage of this opportunity or to make sure that we don't hit a failure point. So think about the data that is available to you and make sure that you know your business. The second challenge is thinking strategically. So I've been sharing some examples of thinking strategically, but sometimes when we in HR think about strategic thinking, we tend to think about where we sit at a table. And that doesn't necessarily mean anybody at that table is strategic. And an example I think we in HR have fallen into where we for a number of years were so focused on, I want that seat at the table and I want to be a strategic HR partner that somewhere along the line, we many of us kind of lost sense of what that actually was. And I'll give you an example. I spoke at a HR chapter a few years ago And during the meeting before I spoke, they actually gave out some awards. It was the first of the year, and they gave out some awards for the previous year. And one of the awards that they gave out was the HR professional who had attended the most meetings the previous year, because everybody loves a good, perfect attendance award, right? (laughs) So the person that won the award, her name was Karen, had attended 67% of the chapter meetings the year before. So good job, Karen. She accepted her award, and everybody clapped for her. And then I gave an awesome presentation about something, I'm sure. And after the meeting, I was walking out back to my car. And it was a cold January day with a lot of snow on the ground. And I just kind of headed back to my car. And Karen came out about the same time. And I didn't, you know, I live in Cincinnati. And this was in Cincinnati. And so I knew of her, but had not really had a chance to talk to her. And so while we were walking, I said, you know, congratulations on your award. That's quite an honor. Good job. And she said, well, thank you. And I said, what do you actually do, Karen? Where do you work? What do you do? And she said, well, I'm actually looking for a job. Oh, okay. Well, I'm a person in Cincinnati. I have a network. I am a network of HR people. Maybe I can help. What are you looking for? And she said, I want a job as a strategic HR professional. I feel like in my job today, I'm not able to be strategic, and I really feel like I have the opportunity to be strategic, and I need to be strategic, and I want a job where I can be a strategic HR professional. Wow. So... I said, okay, well, are there any particular companies or opportunities that you're looking at that maybe I can connect you with? And she said, nope, just really looking for a strategic HR opportunity because I don't feel like I'm able to be strategic in my current role. And by then I was cold and tired and I was at my car and I said, well, good luck with that. I hope you're able to find a strategic opportunity because basically what I kept hearing from her was, strategic. that's my favorite word from Will Farrell, George Bush. But what she was saying obviously wasn't even connecting with her. It's like that classic, you know, I think that does not mean what you think it means. That word does not mean. She was just parroting back, I want to be a strategic HR professional. Fortunately, she did get another job. And then a few months later, she sent a mass email out to all of her LinkedIn connections and said, I just want to let everyone know that the opportunity that I took didn't work out because I wasn't able to be strategic. So now I'm in the market and I'm looking for a strategic HR professional role, right? So stop focusing on being called strategic. Strategic thinking is what you need to focus on regardless of your title in the organization, regardless of where you sit or where your cubicle is located. Anyone can think strategically. And what thinking strategically means is that we stop focusing on HR issues and we focus on business issues. What are the business issues that are driving the business, preventing the business from being successful, the opportunities for the business in the future, and then how can HR support that? I'll give you another story from my experience. I spent a few years as an executive recruiter working with organizations bringing in leadership talent, and at one point, I was filling a role for an HR director in a pretty prominent company, and I came across a candidate that not only did her background look interesting, but her title in the organization that she worked for was interesting, and she worked at the time as the director of human resources for the Cincinnati Reds. Now, it's no longer the person, so don't even go look them up on LinkedIn, uh, But the director of HR at Cincinnati Reds, that sounds like a pretty cool job, right? And so I had an opportunity. Her background looked interesting. I wanted to bring her in so I could chat with her because I wanted to learn, like, why you would want to leave as the director of HR of the Cincinnati Reds. So brought her in, had a chance to connect with her and talk to her about the opportunity. And, you know, of course, a natural question is, well, it sounds like you have a really cool job. You know, why would you want to leave as the director of the Cincinnati Reds? Kind of a pretty premier organization in our area. And she said, it's actually the worst job ever. Okay. She doesn't get to deal with the players at all. So no, you know, star issues. It's all about the operations and the ballpark and what it takes to run the ballpark. So it's not as sexy as you think. And she said, but the real reason that I'm looking to leave my job is the COO, who's the owner's brother, doesn't think HR is important. And he doesn't ever do anything that I suggest. And he just won't ever listen to me. And I don't feel like I'm ever going to be able to do anything strategic because he won't even listen to me because he doesn't believe HR is important. I said, well, that's a shame. Can you give me an example of maybe how or why he doesn't feel like HR is important? And she said, oh, yeah, I have a great example. She said, I've proposed for the last two years that we need to redo our benefits plans. We don't have things like HMOs and PPOs and all the latest buzzwords, and we haven't upgraded our benefits plans in a really long time. And I've been proposing to him that we need to do this for the last couple of years. And he just keeps telling me no. And I said, well, why does he say no? And she said, because it costs money. And I said, okay, so it costs money. Does this mean because your benefit plans haven't been upgraded that you're having difficulty attracting talent to your organization? And she said, oh, God, no. All I have to do is put a trash can out with a sign on it that says we're hiring and people will line up around the blocks because everybody wants to work for the Cincinnati Reds. She said, I get letters from grown men with families who say they want to quit their full-time job and come and work for us as an intern because it's their lifelong dream to work for the Cincinnati Reds. I don't have any trouble hiring, and when people come to work for us, they tend to stay. I said, so you're not having trouble hiring. You're not having trouble with people leaving. They come and they stay. Are you getting any employee survey feedback or anything where people are complaining about the benefits in the organization? And she said, Nope. People love working for the Cincinnati Reds. Once they get a job here, they're here for life. And I said, maybe that's why the COO doesn't think your benefits need to be changed. It costs money, but there's no real value to the organization, right? The people are apparently happy with the benefits that they have today. And she's like, well, that's not right. We need to change our benefits plans. Everybody's changing their benefits plan. That's because she was focused on human resources and not the business. So, Ask yourself questions when people aren't listening to you or people aren't taking your advice or doing the things that you recommend. Are you solving a business problem or a challenge? Are you thinking strategically about what it takes to move the business forward and hit the strategic objectives? Are you focused on the latest HR objectives? And sometimes those things overlap and sometimes they should and we have to make a business case to get a new benefit plan, and I've done that. I've actually sold to an executive team before where we increased the cost of our benefits, but we showed the data as to why that was necessary to reduce turnover or increase retention, but also in the long run it saved us a lot of money because we bundled benefits. So it can be done, but we need to focus on the needs of the business. So I want you to think about every interaction that you have with your CEO or the leaders in your organization like Tom Cruise and Cuba Cooting Jr. and Jerry Maguire. I want you to think about your CEO sitting across the table from you and looking at you like that conversation where the famous line was uttered that was what? Nobody ever gets this one right. The famous line (laughs) that you want your CEO to say to you is you complete me, right? Oh my gosh, you're thinking about how we can make more money and I can get more bonus at the end of the year. You complete me. That's ultimately what you want your CEO to feel about you, the most important employee in the organization. But the translation of that is show me the money. You need to speak the language of money in your business. It's not about the right thing to do or the latest thing to do or the legal requirements of what we need to do All of those things may be true, but if you can't mull that down into the language of money, it's gonna cost us money if we don't do this, it's going to make us money if we do this. You have to be able to articulate things in terms of money. A couple of years ago I spoke here at the Sherm conference about leadership development and the importance of leadership development in organizations and afterwards a woman came up to me and she said I you know had a question after the session and she said I've been trying to sell a leadership development program that I've been working on for 2 years to my leadership team and they're just not buying it. Do you have any suggestions for me to how I could get them to buy into the leadership development program? My first question was what was the problem that you initially wanted to solve? by having a leadership development program. And she looked at me and she said, I don't know. And I said, that might be why they're not listening to you. Until you can articulate the problem that will be solved by implementing a new program, it's not gonna be relevant to them. So again, think about showing the money. What are the business issues? What do we need to be laser focused on? What do we need to know about the business that we can support in HR? I love this quote from Sue Meisinger, who's actually here at Sherm. She's the former CEO of Sherm. Time to lift your sights above human resources, focus on the entire business first, and then consider your role in it. And again, a lot of you are going, oh, of course I do that already. Look at your objectives. Look at your goals and objectives for this year and for your team. Are those HR goals or are they business goals of how HR can help deliver on the business goals? So we need to be focused on the needs of the business an opportunity for you to understand what those are or to do a kind of a mid-year recheck on how you can do that, go back and meet with your leadership peers. Meet with the functional heads of each area in your organization. Schedule 30 minutes with them and say, I just wanted to do a mid-year checkup with you because I want to understand what are the top three challenges that your team is facing in meeting business objectives this year. If you ask your customers what their top three challenges are, and then you ultimately work with them to help them solve those challenges, you do two things by doing that. Number one, you're working on obviously business challenges because that's what's preventing them from being successful, and you're solidifying relationships with your peers. How can I, my team, HR help you be successful in meeting your objectives, which are focused on business objectives? That's a great way to go back, and really connect with your team, your organization, and get HR connected to the business. A third challenge for HR, again kind of along the same lines, is to really focus on solving business problems. Are you focused on solving those top three business problems that are going on in your organization today? What are your managers complaining about in regards to people and teams and training and what's preventing them from being successful in terms of how they meet objectives? We have to focus on solving real business problems. And I don't know if you know this or not, but problems are part of life. So if you have problems in your organization, that's actually job security, right? Because somebody needs to solve those problems and you wanna be seen and you want your team to be seen as the organization that is really focused on solving business problems in the organization because life and living is about solving problems. So I wanna share with you another story from kind of my experience. One of my first clients was the CEO of a large privately held company And they were actually a company is on the fastest growing. They've been on the Inc. 5000 list for a number of years. Very successful company. The CEO still owns the company solely and started the company in his basement several years ago. And about eight years into the business, he called me and he said, Jennifer, I want you to come in and meet with me. I'd like for you to evaluate my VP of HR because I'm not sure I have the right person in HR, and I just don't feel like they get the business. But before I take any action, I'd like to have you come in and really kind of evaluate that from an outside perspective, which I appreciated. Now, he had a reputation for being kind of like this guy, kind of a, a control freak, kind of, um, you know, not necessarily your favorite person to be around. The company had a reputation out in the industry for being very high turnover, having a poor culture, just not a lot of good things going on. But at the same, time they were growing. And so when I went to meet with him, we walked through, they just built a new six-story office building that was wholly occupied with their almost a thousand employees, and he took me on a tour of every floor of the building. And we got to a fourth floor that was completely empty, and he just mentioned this floor is empty and waiting for people to be filled. We get to his office in the corner on the sixth floor, we sit down, and he says, did you notice as we walked through on the tour how many empty seats were out there? I said, I did, including the whole fourth floor. And he said, every empty seat in this building is a missed revenue opportunity because our business model is basically, if we have a person in that seat, we make money. And he said, my challenge is, is that our number one goal since I started this business was to be a billion dollar business by the time we have been in business for 10 years. And that's next year. And in order to hit a billion dollars in sales by next year, we have to fill hundreds of positions in this organization. And last year we were supposed to fill over 800 positions and we only filled 349. This year we need to hire more than a thousand people in order to achieve our billion dollar goal and we're well behind that target. And my VP of HR tells me that we've hired all the people out there and there aren't any more people to hire. Which was interesting because the year was 2009. (laughs) These were entry-level, $32,000 jobs, unskilled. They had a great training program. They would teach people what they needed to do the job. And most of them were college hires that they were bringing into the organization. And in 2009, there were quite a few college students that weren't able to get jobs, but there were also a lot of people who weren't able to get jobs. So it didn't necessarily match up that the VP of HR, the director of recruiting, would be saying, we've hired all the people and that's why we can't fill 1,000 jobs this year and why we weren't able to fill 800 jobs last year. So sounded interesting, but I spent a couple of weeks and I went out and I met with every executive leader in the organization. I met with all the sales managers in the organization. There were nine of them. I met with a few new hires. I met with everybody on the HR team, everybody on the recruiting team, and kind of asked them, you know, how's the business going? What do you think about the VP of HR? What do you think about how HR recruiting is supporting the organization? And to a person, and I talked to dozens of people, to a person, every single person said, Our VP of HR is a great guy. Everybody likes him. He's really a great guy. And he's done a lot for HR. He's done things in terms of our compliance. He's created a new handbook. We've updated our benefits plans. It seems like they've got a lot of good systems. Their filing is in order in HR. He's a great guy and everybody loves him. I was like, okay, so he's a great guy, everybody loves him, lots of great things going on in HR. Do you see any problems with what's happening in HR with the VP of HR? And to a person, they all said, he's not going to make it because he and the CEO don't see eye to eye because we cannot hire enough people. Okay, that's interesting. Same thing I heard from the CEO, right? So I go and I meet with the VP of HR finally. He didn't necessarily look like this. And actually, I knew him. I'd known him for several years. He was somebody that, uh, a very competent gentleman, you know, had been a VP of HR at several other organizations before. And when I talked to him, I said, obviously, you know why I'm here. And he said, of course, I know why you're here. You're here to see whether or not I'm doing a good job. And I said, yeah. So what do you think about that? Do you think you're doing a good job? And he said, I just think the CEO doesn't know anything about HR. He doesn't get me. He won't listen to me. He doesn't understand what we've done down here. He doesn't understand how we have changed our handbook. We've changed the policies and procedures. We've added new benefits. We've gotten more compliant. We've done a lot of great work, and I just can't get him to see that. I said, well, he's kind of focused on this hiring thing, the fact that you need to hire a lot of people in order to get to a billion dollars in sales, and that's not happening. He goes, yeah, he just doesn't get it. There aren't enough people out there. Well, ultimately, again, 2009, people available, we need them. And a couple of weeks later, and and it wasn't, you know, they kind of mutually came to that decision, but it clearly wasn't working out. The VP of HR decided to go on to find another job in a very slow growth company where he's still there today. And ultimately, the CEO brought in a new VP of HR who came up with new ideas, So instead of hiring and relocating everyone to Cincinnati, why not have satellite offices all over the world? Because all the people needed was a desk and a telephone. So now, fast forward seven years later, they have offices in, I think, 42 states. They have over 2,500 employees. They're well over a billion dollars in sales, and they are continuing to grow faster than most privately held companies in the nation. Because somebody came in and said, we don't necessarily get attention for doing great HR. We need to do great HR, but if we're not solving the biggest problem in the business, then nobody's gonna care. So being a great guy, doing good things, making sure we're compliant, not enough. You have to solve the biggest problems in your business. You have to be focused on where you can add the most impact. All that other stuff, blocking and tackling, obviously. The CFO still needs to make sure that the books balance and the bills are paid, right? But that's not how they add strategic value to the business. So solving business problems is the most important thing we can do. This is a great quote. It's actually one of Facebook's core values. If we wanna have the business impact or the biggest impact, the best way to do this is to focus on solving the most important problems. So again, go back to your organizations, ask your leaders, ask your peers, what are the biggest problems you're facing? Be known as a volunteer problem solver. Understand how you can use those resources, that number one resource in the company and your knowledge of it to help solve business problems because that's where you really add value. The fourth challenge I see for HR in the future is our ability to influence change. Now, remember, I spent almost 28 years of my career in and around human resources, and about 20 of those were spent as an HR practitioner, and I did a lot of HR wrong so that I could tell you what not to do. And a lot of what I did as an HR person was I focused on keeping ducks in a row, making sure that every I was dotted and every T was crossed and everything was filed in the correct place and we followed all the laws. I also herded a lot of cats. I made sure you know, that people were happy and you know, tried to answer all the problems. What I also did was I did a lot of telling people that they needed to listen to me because I was in HR. I did a lot of saying it's the right thing to do. And we have to do this because it's legal or not legal. If we don't do this, we'll get sued. And what our leaders and organizations want from us is not that. That's actually the last thing that they want. And I've spent a lot of time talking with CEOs and executives over the years and both as a recruiter and as someone now who consults with them, and I've asked them, what is it that you want from your HR leader that you're not currently getting? It's a great question to kind of just get people to tell me where I can focus my efforts. What is it that you want from your HR leaders that you're not currently getting? The biggest answer by far is they want their HR leader to make decisions. Too many CEOs tell me my HR leader has a seat at the table. They come and sit in all the executive team meetings. They take furious notes. They never say a word until we've batted around a bunch of ideas and made a decision, and then they pipe up and say, we can't do that because we'll get sued. Or they say, this will never work. Or they say, no, (laughs) right? I want my HR leader to bring their HR expertise to the table, I want them to participate in the debate, I want them to have courage. I want them to have executive and leadership courage to bring forth ideas that they know may be shot down, to be able to defend their ideas without taking it personal to be able to help us get to the best decision because they have knowledge and expertise that I will never have. But I can't take advantage of it if all they ever do is tell me what we can't do. So I did that for a number of years. I stopped my foot a lot. I need to be in that meeting. HR should be in that meeting. I can't believe you had a meeting and didn't invite me, right? You may or may not have done that, but I did, and it's wrong, so don't. <laughs> what we need to be doing is We need to be in the meeting so that we can ask questions, so that we can debate ideas, so that we can help our organization get to the best ideas. The best ideas come out of healthy conflict. So you actually need to embrace the idea that I'm going to go in and propose a new benefit plan, and I guarantee you the CFO is going to not like it because it costs money. So I need to anticipate that question. I need to come prepared with data and facts and information, and I need to be a salesperson and sell my ideas. That's what our leaders want from us, that full participation as a business leader who is focused on getting to the best idea, whether it's my idea or not. So courage is what they want from us, and influence is critical. And this is a quote from a friend of mine, Neil Morrison, who's a group director, equivalent of CHRO, at Penguin Random House in the UK. And he wrote this on his blog several years ago, and I think it's golden. You don't get influence through control. You get influenced through other people's positive perception of you. You get influence through people wanting you to be involved, not by telling them you have to be. I wish I'd read that several years ago when I worked in HR because I told a lot of people that I needed to be involved and how important it was for me to be there. Where the secret to being involved was to add enough good input that they would actually want me there. I got to a point in my career where people would invite me to the marketing team meetings or the operations team meetings because they liked my perspective. They liked that I asked good questions or that maybe I wasn't an expert in that area and so I asked the questions that the experts in the room never would think to ask. So get your peers and your leaders to think about you as a person who adds value and they'll want you to be involved. If you show up just because HR should be there or because you demanded to be there, then you probably don't have the influence that you need in order to sell your ideas and get things done. So the four challenges that I brought for you is I want you to know the business, I want you to think strategically, I want you to solve business problems, and I want you to work on your influence. If you do nothing in 2016 other than focus on building your influence with your peers, both internally and externally in the organization, you'll get very far as a leader in the future of HR. Now, I know all of you like to have takeaways, you'd like to have things you can write down, so I'm going to give you that. I've got five action steps that I want you to take so that you can do the things that I've mentioned and address the challenges that I've brought forward for you. The first one is, I want you to shift your thinking. And Hank Jackson actually mentioned this last year in his opening address, and I've been saying it for a long time, so I'm not sure who copied who. Um, But... I feel like we need to stop thinking of ourselves as HR leaders, and I love HR leaders. This is my group, my people, my team, right? But you are not an HR leader. You are a business leader who happens to work in HR. You need to focus on calling yourself and thinking of yourself and acting like a business leader with HR expertise. If that's what you think of first as I'm the HR leader, then that means that you're focused on one piece of the organization. If you're a business leader who happens to work in HR, you're focused on the whole organization. How many of you know Steve Brown? Quite a few of you. Steve is actually an HR practitioner. He's the executive director of human resources for La Rosa's Inc in Cincinnati. It's a regional pizzeria chain, about 1400 employees. And he also was put on the SHRM board this year. So Steve is a SHRM board member representing us. And when you meet Steve, he's a friendly guy. You can't miss him. He wants to meet all of you. So if you're not connected to Steve Brown, it's Steve Brown with an E, S Brown, HR on Twitter, or Steve Brown on LinkedIn. But when you meet Steve, if you don't know him and you ask him, hi, Steve, what do you do? Now, remember, Steve's got a very impressive title, and most of us like to have impressive titles and impress our friends, right? Steve doesn't say, I'm the executive director of HR. Steve says, I make pizza. I make pizza at La Rosa's Pizza. I do what it takes to help our team members make the best pizza for our customers and make them happy. And he means that. That's not just a stick. He makes pizza and he does that through leading the HR function in the organization and being part of the executive team. Now you may not need to introduce yourself as I make widgets but it's a mindset shift. Shift your thinking to I'm a business leader who works in HR at my company. Second one, and I did this wrong again for many years, you need to feed your brain. I focused so much on the work that needed to be done within the four walls of the company that I worked in or the companies I worked in for years. And back in the day, if you remember, we got the BLR newsletters and you stapled a sticky note to it and put everybody's initials on it and sent it around and it got lost on somebody's desk, right? We didn't have the opportunities then back in the day that we do now. There's so much information available to us, both through SHRM, but also through news sites, through online blogs. I can tell you that today, seven years, eight years, well, so I've been out a practitioner since 2005, so I guess that's 11 years. 11 years later, I would be a much, much better HR practitioner than I ever was when I was in the corporate world because... Now, as a consultant and as a speaker, I immerse myself in learning, and that's a failure that I made when I was an executive in HR. I didn't focus on learning and the opportunities that were out there where I could learn from other people. So we need to feed our brain. And to do that, I'd encourage you to read. And if you want to read some HR blogs, just go to my website, unbridledtalent.com. Up at the top right corner, you'll see my recommended top 25 HR recruiting blogs. And those are the people that taught me a lot. They're practitioners, they're consultants, they're pundits, they're thought leaders, they're people who share their experiences that opened up a whole new world to me in HR. But I also encourage you to read. I'm challenged with reading books. I'm not somebody who really necessarily likes to read books, but when I do read them, I like them. But I, this year, have set some goals for myself that I wanna read one fiction and one nonfiction book each month. And I wanna read books not just about HR, or about leadership, or about speaking, but I wanna read books about marketing. I wanna read books about business. I want to open up my world and expose myself to new things. There have actually been studies that have shown just by reading, doesn't matter fiction, nonfiction. It makes you smarter and a better communicator. And there's a guy who did a study on rich people and wrote a book about it. And 80% of rich people read books. Poor people, not so much. So which one do you want to be, right? So read. Find resources that you can trust and go to every day. And find books and resources that you can read. Another one is connect with your tribe. And again, I found a tribe myself through social media, through online activities, but I also find tribes by coming to events like this. So I wanna challenge you, engage with those people. When I left HR and I actually went out and I started talking to people about eventually starting my own business, I was so disappointed in myself because for the first time in my career, I met so many people who had great advice who had been through similar challenges as me, who had maybe solved it through a different way of going about things. I met vendors who could have been very helpful to me when I was very closed off on going out and meeting people and engaging people as an HR practitioner. So I challenge you, you're here at the largest HR event in the world. Many of you are probably sitting next to a person that you work with or somebody that you already know challenge yourself to meet at least three people. When I say meet, have a conversation with them. Get to know them. Find something that you have in common. Maybe stay in touch or get connected on LinkedIn or something after you leave here. Build a network of people that can help you, that you can learn from their experiences, that is so invaluable and it's probably the most valuable tip I can give you. If you're not connected to your peers and other people in HR to feed you and to encourage you and to help you solve problems, that's something you can change today. And fourth, I want you to focus on impact back when i started in hr i kind of joked about i wanted to work in hr because i like people and i wanted to help people and that was only like 10 percent true i'm kind of introverted so i don't really like people or want to help them No, just kidding kidding it's not true don't tweet that Uh, (laughs) actually the reason why i chose hr was when i was a junior in college and my advisor said okay you have to pick a major and i was like where's the job that i can have the impact on the most people in the organization. And I don't know if he said HR or personnel, but that's what I came up with. I felt like by being in human resources that I had the opportunity to have interaction with everybody in the organization, which meant I could impact them. And over the years, there have been so many examples of people that I've impacted positively And also people that I've impacted negatively because of the position that I held. So the power I think that we hold in HR, the ability to impact people and change their lives is so huge. And unfortunately, many of us approach our jobs every day like it's the worst jail manager job in the world, right? That all we do is tell people what to do and people fail, right? But you need to be happy because you probably are impacting somebody positively or negatively that day. I think about the employee that called me from the parking lot that I didn't even really know him, called me from the parking lot because he was about to commit suicide and he didn't know who else to call. And I went out and I met him, and then afterwards people said I shouldn't have done that, but then I went with him to the emergency room because nobody in his family would come, and I stayed there with him all night and helped to change his life and get him the help that he needed. I think about the people that I fired who maybe years later who came back and said, the fact that you treated me humanely through that process helped me to realize what I needed to do differently in my next job. I've worked with people who maybe never would have gotten noticed for leadership positions that I didn't you know, use favoritism or anything, but I encouraged them or helped them to kind of mentor them on their path. There are people out there who write me letters to this day who say, you positively impacted my life. There are also people that I avoid them when I see them across the street, right? <laughs> but but we have such a huge opportunity to impact people, and I don't want you to take that for granted. I Recently, I uh, give to an organization called International Justice Mission. International Justice Mission is an organization that works to free women from sex slavery in India and that area of the world. and. At the end of last year, they shared a video of some of the women who had been impacted in that program, saved from sex slavery, taken to a halfway house, and then also helped to get them jobs. And I'll never forget watching the video and one of the young women telling her story about being sold into slavery at seven, and what that experience was like, and how dehumanizing it was, and how being saved she was afraid, and the good people that work for International Justice Mission helped her to see that she could change her life. And she looked into the camera and she said, because of you, my life has been changed. And I can't even say that without crying. Whether she was talking, you know, I give a few dollars to International Justice Mission, but because of you, my life has been changed. That is something that you can do every day in HR. There are people who because of you, because you listened, because you didn't just focus on the law and you looked at the spirit of the law and the intent, that you can change their lives. People who you can recognize their potential better than their immediate manager. Help those people and be happy about the work and the opportunity that you have to influence their life. And then finally, I want to encourage you to step out. There are opportunities out there, regardless of how old you are, of what race or sex you are, where your position is in the company, what type of work that you do at your company. There are opportunities out there for you, but you're going to have to step out and take advantage of those opportunities. And I want to share an example from my personal hero of what it's like to believe in yourself and really step out. My personal hero would be my mother, my mother. And in 2011, when my mother was 76 and my father was 81, they were both diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer about two months apart from each other. And I don't know if any of you have baby boomer, or I guess they're the silent generation type parents, but my mother sent me an email in February of 2011 and told me my dad had gone for a routine doctor's appointment and been diagnosed with cancer but he had decided, because that's just who he was, he lived life on his own terms, he was not gonna do chemo or do anything and just gonna live with it and live it out, through an email. And then two months later, I got an email from her in April, which was also the month of her birthday, where she said, oh, by the way, I went to the doctor for a routine checkup and I have the same kind of cancer as your father and nobody knows why, but she definitely wanted to make sure that she went after any treatment options that were available when they were necessary, and the doctor said they weren't necessary yet. At the time, my father was retired and working his second job. He'd always been a college professor and then worked in the evenings as a full-time farmer on our 500-acre family farm in Tennessee, and he was working on the farm in his 80s and doing what he loved, but when he got diagnosed with cancer, he pretty much just gave up. He stayed inside every day. He didn't go out to the barn every morning. He sold his cattle, didn't tell my mother. She flipped out. <laughs> sold his cattle and let another guy, a local farmer, young man, uh, work the farm and run his cattle on the farm. And my mother at the time, again 76 years old, was working a full-time job as an office manager. She still works as a full-time office manager at 81. But she, when she did start her chemotherapy treatments, went to chemotherapy every day until three o'clock and then went to work because that's what you do, right? You don't miss work. And unfortunately, my father passed away in January of 2012, which was what he wanted. And he went out on his own terms. And it was also the month that my mom started her first chemo treatment. And my brother and I were really worried because, again, my father had kind of let the farm run down. It costs a lot of money to run a farm even if you're not doing anything on the farm and they live out in the middle of nowhere and out in the middle of nowhere can sometimes be unsafe. And so we worried about my mother. Would she be able to stay out there by herself? Would she even want to? And if she left, I live in Ohio and he lives two hours away, what would we do with the farm? Because it's in our family for years, we don't wanna sell it. And we also worried how was she gonna be able to afford this? When my father died, his pension stopped. It also cut her Social Security by half or more. So she was living on a small Social Security and what she made as a full-time office manager. And that was not enough to run the farm. So I kept telling my brother for about a year in 2012 while we were dealing with all the estate issues, I said, you know, we're going to have to sit down and talk with her because I don't know what she can do in order to stay here on the farm or how she can keep it running. And we're going to have to figure out something or maybe we go into business with her or I don't know. And so over the holidays in 2012, we decided to sit down with her and talk. And we sat down with her and my brother, being the smart person that he is, just pulled out his phone and started checking scores on ESPN. And I went in full-time HR manager mode, and I started talking to her about needing to plan for retirement and having money and, you know, how much she had and not having enough, and she needed to think about this. And she listened to me talk for about an hour, and after about an hour, she looked at me and she said, Jennifer, thank you. You guys have been really helpful to me throughout this year, and I feel like you've supported me through this year. And I thank you for thinking about what I need to do in order to stay here on the farm and how we're going to make it work but I don't want you or your brother to go into partnership with me. I wanna see what I can do on the farm myself. I wanna see if I can make it work. I wanna see what happens if I put some cattle out here on the farm. I'd like to do some things different. Your daddy never let me make any decisions about the farm and that was okay because it was his, but now I have an opportunity and I actually wanna step out and see what I can do. And I looked at her and it was just something about those words, step out. She wanted to step out, which basically meant we needed to step back. And that was perfectly fine with me. I still worried that she'd be able to afford it. I still worried about her safety being there on the farm at night. But the fact that she wanted to try at 77 to see if she could run a business while still working full time that she really had no experience in other than watching my dad make all the decisions, and she did. And it just so happens that while we were worried about how she was going to make this work, but stepping back, she befriended the young man that my dad had sold his cattle to. She'd never met him before my father died, but she she met him at the funeral, and turns out he was in his early 30s working a full-time job, but his lifelong dream was to be a full-time farmer. He just didn't have the land to be able to do that. So she hired him for $24,000 a year to manage her farm. She made $24,000 a year. So I kind of went, well, that, that's interesting. Yes, you step out, you, you go. Um, so her and Chris sat down and they decided that for the first time ever on our family farm, which my dad had always said was unplantable hills and bad cropland, they decided to plant soybeans and they planted produce to sell. And their first year, while it wasn't entirely profitable, she did make a profit. And the second year, they decided to plant not only soybeans, but also corn. And at the same time, she bought cattle and put them on the farm. And I bought my dad's cows back from that guy because they needed to be on our farm. So now we have cattle, we have soybeans, we have corn. And then last two years ago, they actually rented other people's farms to plant soybeans and corn on And two years ago, I helped her with her taxes and she made more money than me. And I am pretty successful. (laughs) I'm just kidding. She was complaining, what was really funny was she was complaining about how much taxes she was having to pay. And I was like, that's a function of, you've actually got a business and you've made it work. But I share that because my mom is now 81. She tried to retire from her full-time job so she could focus on farming full-time and her boss hired like six people to replace her and they all quit or got fired, so he asked her to come back. (laughs) So now she works full-time at the office and she still works full-time on the farm and again, they're doing multiple things there. This is her counting some of her cows. She goes out every Saturday with the farm manager to count the cows. This is her walking through The soybeans that my dad would have told you never could have been planted. So she stepped out. She believed in herself. She didn't listen to her children who said she couldn't do it. She didn't listen to people who told her that she was too old to do it. She didn't listen to people who said, you don't have the experience to do it. She wanted to try. So what could you accomplish if you decided to try? You might fail. She still might fail. But she's enjoying the ride and living her dreams she sent out a letter a couple years ago at the end of the year to family and friends and you know she always she sends us a weekly report my brother and i a weekly report of basically what chris the farm manager is doing so chris works on broken things all the time Uh, but she sends out a report you know how much she spent how much she brought in and she sent out at the end of the year a report that said i want to thank everyone for helping me to live my cowgirl dreams So I wanna encourage you to go out and live your dreams in the future of HR. The future of HR, you need to be curious. What questions do you need to be asking? What data do you need to look at? What information can you use to move your business forward? You're gonna have to be determined because people are gonna tell you no, they're gonna tell you you can't, they're gonna tell you that HR doesn't need to be involved. But if you stay focused on solving business problems and you're determined, you can be there. I want you to be innovative we're going to have to do things differently. If there are practices in your organization that have been the same way and results continue to get worse or they're the same, that's a ripe opportunity to do something different. While you're here at the conference and with the people that you meet, find ways that you can be innovative in the future. And then finally, you're going to need to be disruptive. Now, when I say disrupt, often people will say, well, you want me to throw things and yell at people and break glass? No, I don't want you to do that. Disruptive means you are not comfortable with the status quo. Never be comfortable with the way things have always been. There's always a better way and a way that will be required in the future. So good luck with the future of HR. There are challenges ahead, but I believe in you, and I encourage you to step out. Have a great day. Do you work somewhere? doing something? My guess is you probably do. And if you do, then you probably have some ideas about how we can make work better, make the workplace a better place for all, or improve the world of work in some way. Then you should be a part of a Disrupt HR community. Disrupt HR events are organized all over the world by local volunteers where people come together to share ideas about the future of work, talent, technology, company culture, and so much more. You can learn more about Disrupt HR and find a community near you at DisruptHR.co. And if there's not a community near you, then get in touch with us to learn more about how you can bring Disrupt HR to your city. And now, after six plus years of bringing together disruptive people at community events all over the world, we've been asked to bring Disrupt HR to a bigger stage, a global stage, and we're finally doing it. On May 12, 2020, Disrupt America will be the first global Disrupt HR event, and we'll be taking over the big stage, actually the huge stage, at the Unleash America Global Conference at the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Whether you've given a Disrupt HR talk, organized an event, attended an event, or you'd just like to be in the same room with hundreds of people who are excited about making positive changes in the workplace, we'd love to see you there. To find out more and to register to attend, head on over to jennifermcclure.net forward slash America. I am super excited about this event, and I would absolutely love to see you there. It's time for you to get noticed, create change, and grow your influence.